Let's turn our hearts and our attentions to the Word of God as we are continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We are at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Let's turn our attention now to God's very Word. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's very word. I want to give you kind of an application question right at the outset, something for you to think about. And I'll introduce it and we'll go from there. And that is, what is your attitude towards the law? What is your attitude? So, for example, I'll share a couple of stories. On vacation, we're on vacation. You ever get, and I'm sure I'm not all that different from you all, or you're not different from me on this. Taking every to Myrtle Beach, I'm driving up I 95 in my Corolla, and I'm relaxed and stuff like that, and I'm, I'm out there, and I'm driving at whatever speed limit. I'm safe, but, you know, whatever. Don't tell Tim on this, on this. And then I see somebody in a car like Tim has. What do you do immediately? Sit up, 10 and 2, here we go. I'm out there, slowly on the brake. Hello, sir, 65, not a, one bit over. Go waving at everybody passing by. Arrest him, not me. Is my attitude towards the law, he's there to protect me? He's there for my good? What is my attitude at that point? One more story I'll share with you. Call this Vulnerable Sunday. It's kind of an embarrassing moment type of thing. I'm not real proud of this. Many, many years ago, Evie and I were doing ministry in Oklahoma, and we're driving on a Sunday afternoon, much like if we were coming to Rick's Bible study. We were going to a 4 or 5 o'clock Bible study in somebody's neighborhood, and we were running late. I won't say whose fault it was, probably mine, but we were running late. And so we're on our way and we're getting there and I pull into the neighborhood and there's a stop sign in the subdivision. Of course, how do I approach that stop sign? Do I come to a full and complete stop, look both ways? And No, I kind of slow down. I do look both ways. I'm safe and I go and I get right in front of the house where Bible study is. And all of a sudden I look in my rearview mirror and the lights are on. I'm like, Bible study's not off to a good start. <laughs> and as I'm getting my license, insurance, registration, all that kind of fun stuff, of course, the place where Bible study, the small group, was held, this was a homeschooling family that had, I think, 23, 24 kids, something like that, and they're all at the window gawking. <laughs> Pastor Birch is arrested. There's no small group tonight. And as I'm going over there and I'm thinking to myself, what do you think my attitude toward the law was right at that moment? Am I alone? What is your attitude towards the law? And more important, I bring that up with our earthly law, what is your attitude towards the law of God? The psalmist in Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight 
is in the law of the Lord. And you know what the word delight means? Delight doesn't just mean he kind of likes it, he kind of loves it. Delight means his entire being is enraptured with the word of God. He's overcome. His mind is engaged. His mind is inflamed. His passions, his affections, his emotions, every ounce of them, he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates. He doesn't just have a 10-minute devotion. He chews, he ponders, he studies, he grasps, he looks to understand the connections. He wants to know all of it. He meditates. When? Day and night. What is your attitude towards the law of God? How important is the law of God to you? John Newton, ex-slave trader and writer of probably the most famous hymn ever written, Amazing Grace, was also a great letter writer. And he was writing in a letter to someone, he said that ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. In the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus is showing us the nature and design of the law of God. And this is a very important, and may I say, I think it's a very misunderstood topic. It is not one that we get. I want you to think about where we are in the context of Jesus' overall sermon thus far. He's given us what the character of the kingdom is all about in those statements of blessing called the Beatitudes. That kingdom character is all about humility and meekness, poverty of spirit, spiritual bankruptcy, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and justice in relationships, purity of heart, being a person who's used of God to make peace in our relationships. And yes, you get persecuted for that. When that's your kingdom character, you will have an influence in the world. You are salt of the earth. You are a preservative. You add flavor to the world. And you're light of the world. As we gather together, we are a light on a hill showing the world Jesus Christ is king and there's no other. And so you have an influence for the kingdom. But in the context of this, think about something. We've seen what Jesus is speaking about. He's made it very clear what belonging to the kingdom means. But in doing so, he's never even mentioned the law, has he, up to this point. And as Sinclair Ferguson points out, he says, imagine you are a first century scribe, a first century teacher of the law, first century Pharisee. What are you thinking? You are probably thinking, does this mean that Jesus is overthrowing the law? Who's this young hotshot anyway? Who does he think he is? Jesus certainly taught that the way of salvation and entry into God's kingdom was by grace and could in no way be merited or earned through the keeping of the law. So think about it again from the standpoint of a first century scribe or Pharisee. If obedience to the law in a sense gets us nothing, what is its place? What is the place of the law in our lives? Their concern probably was like many of ours today. If you take away the law as a means of earning merit, or maybe if you're not quite that blatant, How often do we think, well, we don't at least obey to earn God's favor, but we need to obey for God to be happy with us. We need to be happy. We need to obey in order for God to kind of make sure he still likes us and we're still in that he blesses us. If we say that the law doesn't help us in that way, it loses its teeth. It loses its hold. It loses its power. And I want you to think about something. Is that what the law is all about? Is that really its design? Is that really its nature? This is a very important and can be a very difficult and even hotly debated topic. 
But may I suggest that if there is one theme of this passage that we're going to trace through the four verses of this particular section of Jesus' sermon, that theme is fulfillment. Fulfillment is the theme of this particular passage. And Jesus teaches that theme of fulfillment from three angles or perspectives. From the law's purpose, the law's promise, and the law's practice. All three of those angles bring together the theme of fulfillment. Let's begin with verse 17, which says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I want you to notice a couple of things there. First of all, when Jesus begins with the words, Do not think, D.A. Carson commentating on this points out that what he's doing is he's using a teaching device there. And that teaching device is designed to clarify certain aspects of his kingdom, of his rule, his reign, and his mission, as well as to ward off potential misunderstandings. And so he says, do not think, here's Jesus teaching and clarifying and warding off potential misunderstandings. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. What is he doing? He's clarifying. He's saying what he's come to do. He is clarifying his mission, his intention. And this particular passage introduces the theme which, in effect, will occupy the rest of the sermon. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And I want you to notice those two terms, those two words, are used together. And what Jesus means by this is the whole of the scriptures, which for him and his contemporaries at that time, so for the original readers, would have been the Old Testament So when Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets here, he's not just referring to a section of the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments or the Moral Law or the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses. He's talking about the whole of the scriptures. D.A. Carson makes the point that this is the entire, from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through chapter 7, verse 12, this entire section of Jesus' sermon, he calls it an inclusio, which means it's bracketing, this section around the theme of fulfillment. And the end of that section, chapter 7, verse 12, echoes chapter 5, verse 17 here, when he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the word of God. This is the summation of the scriptures. This is the whole of the scriptures to which you are to conform. So what is Jesus doing here? He is claiming... And he is presenting himself as the very goal of the entire word of God. At that point in time, he'd be the goal of the Old Testament. And one writer shared the following illustration that I think gets to the heart of what Jesus is doing here. He asks the question, he says, what happens when a revolution, a revolutionary movement occurs? And all of a sudden, the revolutionary party finds itself in power. In other words, they've won the revolution, and now they're in power. He writes, he says, it's one thing to protest, it's one thing to rebel, it's one thing to fight and win the revolution, and quite another now to form a government and run the country. He says, all sorts of things have to be organized, dealt with, sustained, which while they were rebelling, while they were protesting, while they were being the revolutionary group, they could ignore. They didn't have to deal with them. The writer points out that there are always two questions in particular which must be asked. First question is, can this movement, when it comes to power, really do the basic things that a government can do better than its predecessor? In other words, why is it rebelling? It's saying, we can do better than those guys before. They're wrong, we're right, we can do it better. So they're making a lot of noise, they're protesting, can they deliver the goods? That's the first question. 
The second question is, can it remain true to itself and its original ideals now that it is in power? In other words, now that it's in power, will it become corrupt? And if you think about it, these are questions, these are issues that are at the bottom of not only a lot of debate today, but a lot of anger, a lot of division, a lot of polarization, a whole lot of discontent. And the situation is not all that different than it was in Jesus' day in the first century. Because Jesus was definitely starting a revolution. Now the revolution was completely different than maybe even what we think of a revolution when we think of that word. Certainly different from what was expected. Certainly different from what was anticipated. But when Jesus comes, I want you to think about the context of the Gospel of Matthew. Andrew mentioned correctly in the Sunday school class we had. He talked about out of all the gospel writers, Matthew was the most Jewish. And he's bringing up the fact that Jesus and his arrival is fulfilling the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus arrives on the scene and right after his temptation in the wilderness, what does he begin? He begins it with a fairly radical and may I dare say revolutionary claim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you don't think that's revolutionary, you don't understand what's being claimed right there. The kingdom of heaven is nothing short of the very rule and reign of God. And Jesus is saying, heaven is coming to earth. And so Jesus, as commentators rightly remind us, has to show the Jews, the readers, the contemporaries, his disciples, the people of his day, that this movement, this kingdom movement, really was the fulfillment of all that was believed, all that was longed for, all that was hoped for. Meaning that Matthew, if he's the most Jewish of all the gospel writers, is constantly showing Jesus is the hope and the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of what they were hoping and longing for. So when Jesus says in verse 17, he hasn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law and his prophets, he is simply saying something that has already been significantly punctuated and said in Matthew's gospel already. Already, we're only in chapter 5 and already six times has the phrase, this is written or spoken by the prophet, been used. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, in chapter 2, verses 5, 15, 17, and 23, and in chapter 4, verse 14, Matthew is continually saying, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Again and again, as one commentator put it, it was, in fact, the reality toward which Israel's entire life and tradition had promised. So the law's purpose was fulfillment. Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel. He is the point to which everything is moving towards. Which leads to our next point. If he's the law's purpose, he's also the law's promise. Look with me at verse 18. If verse 17 says, do not think, meaning he's teaching, he's clarifying. What is he doing in verse 18 when he says, for truly, he's emphasizing In other words, verse 18 relates to verse 17 in that it is further explaining and confirming the truth of verse 17. So verse 17 says, I've not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. Verse 18 says, for truly, here I am, I'm going to emphasize to you, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until the end of this present age, not a yoda, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, not a dot, not the least stroke of a pen, will pass from the law until all 
is accomplished. Do you understand the claim that's being made there? That when Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law. Remember I said the law is the whole of the scriptures until all is accomplished. He is completely upholding the truth and the validity and the authority and the continuity of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you want to see how Jesus viewed the word of God, there's almost no better place to look than right here. This is giving you the human Jesus. Remember, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. And if you want to see how Jesus in his humanity viewed the word of God, look right here. D.A. Carson once again here says that what Jesus is dealing with is the nature, the extent, and the duration of the Old Testament's authority and validity and continuity in our lives. If verse 17 set forth the nature, in other words, the purpose of fulfillment, here in verse 18 with the references to the smallest letter, the smallest stroke of a pen, what Jesus is establishing is the extent of the Old Testament's validity and continuity. And keep in mind, because we hear law, and we are always thinking, okay, Ten Commandments, rules, instructions. Remember what we said earlier. The law almost certainly refers to the entirety of Scripture. Not just the law of Moses, not just the Pentateuch, not just an aspect of it like the Ten Commandments or the moral law. The sermon title today was, How Important is the Law of God? The application of this might simply be how important are the scriptures to you? And how important are the, all of the scriptures, the commands, the promises, the instructions, the story, the narrative, the types, the pictures, the wisdom? Let me ask you a couple of application questions just to show you some of its relevance. Do you tend to pick and choose your more favorite types of Bible reading? Do you tend to just kind of shy away from different aspects and go only toward, I'll stay only in this section because this section is too difficult to understand. Jesus never would have advocated for that. Jesus says not the least stroke of a pen, not the smallest letter will pass away. What is Jesus' attitude towards the word of God? How about your life of obedience? Do you pick and choose the commands of God? Do you pick and choose what you want to hear and not hear? Again, Carson says that these two until phrases, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished, means the entire divine purpose prophesied in Scripture. Not even the tiniest letter, not even the least stroke of a pen will fall of its promise. God's mission, his redemptive mission, will be accomplished. The scriptures reveal, teach, and promise the very mission of God. And friends, do you love the entire whole of the revelation of God? What is your attitude towards the scriptures, towards the law of God in its entirety? Now, how will this be done? How do we know? How does Jesus fulfill the word of God, the law, and the scriptures? He certainly fulfills them in his life, his doctrine, his deeds, his teaching. But ultimately, we see kind of where it's all headed, the climax of the law's fulfillment in his death on the cross. Listen to these words by Sinclair Ferguson. Dr. Ferguson writes, in Jesus' death on the cross, he shows the reality of the law's holiness 
as he bears the penalty of our being lawbreakers. He takes our place before the very judgment seat of God. It is really at the cross alone that we discover the real meaning of the curse and judgment of God's covenant. Do you understand the real meaning of the law of God, of the scriptures, and where they're all pointing? See, again, I think Matthew's gospel brings it out very plainly and very soberly. When you look at the cross, you look at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 46, and what does Jesus do? He screams out, and don't minimize this. Sometimes I think we tend to look at Jesus on the cross. This is a guttural, visceral, emotional, passionate yell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew records that the entire world turned to darkness, utter blackness over the entire land at that point. And he's very, being very particular there because what he's alluding back to is the form of the world as uncreated in Genesis 1. When we say that darkness was over the fort of the deep, the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness, and it was unformed, and it was unfilled, and it was nothing but chaos prior to creation. And what is Jesus doing on the cross? How is the very Word of God coming to its climax? Jesus is defeating and dismantling the entire old world so that in his resurrection he can launch, begin, and inaugurate a new world. And friends, that is your hope. How important is the law of God to you? Not the tiniest letter. If you're taking notes now, not the smallest note and stroke of a pen will pass away until that new world is brought to consummation. And friends, that, and that is the only reason why we can face anything in life. That's why Paul says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. No resurrection and you're to be pitied more than anybody else on the face of the planet. Because in Jesus' death and in Jesus' resurrection, the entirety of the word of God is coming to fulfillment. Now what are the implications of this for us? What does this mean for us? What is the law's practice? And again, have before you, this is not just the doing of instructions and principles and commands. This is our entire life being conformed to the gospel. Our life being conformed to the word of God. The law's practice is our life being a gospel. Jack Miller, used to, I used to love when he would say this. He'd go, does our life bleed gospel? When we cut ourselves and bleed, is it gospel? Oh, that that would be our prayer and our heart's longing, that we would bleed gospel, because that's the meaning behind these words. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that one who's relaxing the commandments and teaching others to do the same, they're still in the kingdom of heaven. They're just called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not a salvation issue here at this point. You're called least. But whoever does them and teaches them, whoever bleeds gospel, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The purpose and the promise lead to practice. Sinclair Ferguson mentions that part of how Jesus fulfills the scripture after his fulfillment and his death and resurrection 
is that he fulfills his law in us, his disciples, his covenant community, his new covenant community. And how does he do it? He does it through the ministry of the Spirit. See, we need to understand how the Old and New Testaments relate to each other, how the Old and New Covenant work together, and what is the movement from old to new. That's why I had Shane read the scripture he did from Jeremiah 31 and Romans 8. You may want to even look at this as I refer to this in in your bulletin as these are written out. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 talks about how he writes the law on our hearts through the ministry of his spirit. He says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So after the continuity, after the new Israel, after reimagined Israel that we are, he says, this is now the new covenant that God makes with us, declares the Lord. And notice what it is. I will put my law within them. No longer external, now internal. No longer on tablets of stone. It's now part of your being. When you become a Christian, the word of God is now part of your being. It's in, you internalize it. Why? Because you are actually united to Jesus Christ. What he has fulfilled for you is now fulfilled in you. And so the law is within us. It's written on our hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Paul applies this in Romans 8, 3 and 4. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. So there was nothing wrong with the law, nothing wrong with the word of God, but we could never fulfill it. We had a problem. We had a dilemma. We couldn't do the word of God. We couldn't follow the law. So God did what we couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, look at what he did. He condemned sin. He dealt with our problem. Once and for all, he condemned sin in the flesh. And here is the big question that leads to the practice. Why? In order that. In order that, so for this reason, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Friends, do you realize that this is the beauty of the new heart? This is what happens to you when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, faith is not just about assenting to and believing to certain truths, but there are certain realities that occur in your life when you believe those realities, when you believe those truths. And they occur because you're actually united to Jesus Christ. The number one phrase Paul used to describe a Christian was in Christ. That was the number one phrase. A Christian is one who is in Christ. And that means what he fulfills is now fulfilled in you. That means we now want to obey him as we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This changes everything. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new life. I recently heard Tim Keller say that this is what the promise when the Old Testament speaks of the circumcision of the heart. Dr. Keller said this is what it really means. That duty, obedience, and desire now line up. You become, when our heart is circumcised in the new covenant and the law is written on your heart, duty becomes desire. Now, it doesn't mean you express it perfectly. That's what repentance is all about. In the freedom of knowing you can't be condemned. There's no condemnation for you. 
But part of the reality of what happens to us when we become a Christian is that duty becomes desire, becomes a choice. Your heart is circumcised. The Spirit of God is in you. These realities occur. You're in Christ. And the Word of God for you to conform to is now written upon your heart. It's now internalized, which is why verse 20 can say that those who are faithful and teach, those they actually do a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And again, I love how D.A. Carson describes this when he says, this really is a righteousness that outstrips the old. He says, we need to recognize that this does not establish how this righteousness is to be gained, only lays out its demand. The demand is it must exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. How is it gained? It's gained through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's gained because it's provided for us. And when we know that this righteousness has been provided for us by and in Christ, when we really know that he is our righteousness, then that can truly free us to genuinely have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. Our righteousness really does outstrip and exceed and surpass them. First, by providing us with a righteousness, Jesus, through his spirit, through the law of God, the word of God being written on our hearts, we participating in the very life of of Christ, he actually does make us righteous. And what does that look like? It's kind of what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's about what chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. Things like relationships and purity and honesty and speech and things like forgiveness and loving your enemies. And into chapter 6, dealing with things like practicing your piety just before God, not before the applause of men, seeking the kingdom of God, learning not to worry and to be anxious, all of these things are the ways God is sanctifying us, progressively making us more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. And how is it summed up? What does Paul say in his letter to the Romans? He says, love. Love is the most excellent way, he says to the Corinthians. He says love is the fulfilling of the law. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount shows us what a life of love really looks like. Love is the fuel. Love is the engine that drives this. And love is not just a warm fuzzy. Love is lived out in concrete relationships with God and with neighbor. Let's pray. Father, I just, we just thank you that you have given us your word. How amazing is it that you would choose to speak to us and reveal to us. So Lord, how important is the word of God to us? May our lives be conformed to it. May our lives fall in love with it. Lord, we pray now as we come together around your table that you feed us, that you remind us and seal to us your grace. In Jesus' name.